Back in the 1800s, the people of Prussia ditched their gold and silver jewellery in favour of iron jewellery. That's right, the wealthy, reputable, noble people across the region proudly wore iron. The reason why can explain what we choose to buy today, how much we're willing to spend, and what we think of brands. All of that in today's episode of Nudge. But first, here is a podcast I'd recommend. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod, brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct-to-consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing, and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C pod wherever you get your podcasts. Now, like most people, I believe that advertisements don't really influence me. I like to think that I'm not influenced by something like this. I don't believe I decide to buy something when I hear this. Free. This is not just food. This is M&S food. And I don't think that simply hearing an ad like this could shape my behaviour. Gillette Foamy Shave Cream. Together, the best a man can get. Now that's what I think. And I'm not alone. Most of us like to think we're independent thinkers, that we have complete free will, that we make our own decisions. None of us like to think that we are persuaded by adverts or that we're influenced by brands. But the evidence suggests otherwise. And I don't just mean brands make us buy stuff. I mean that just seeing a certain brand can, for example, improve your golf swing. Using one brand over an identical other can help you master a violin solo. And taking branded medicine can help you recover from illness faster, even if it's identical to a non-branded version. To explain, I've invited Dr. Matt Johnson back on Nudge. He is the best-selling author of the book Blindsight, which we've covered before on episode 40 of Nudge, and he's just released a new book called Branding That Means Business. To start, Matt explains that brands really do influence our perception and behaviour. Oh, and he explains that my preference for Coca-Cola might be irrational. So really when most people think about brands, they they tend to think about the external. They think about what's out there in the world. They think about uh, the logos, they think about campaigns, they think about uh, celebrity endorsements that are affiliated with the brand, but they don't really think about the internal. And most of the heavy lifting with branding is actually on the internal side of things, actually etching changes in the architecture of our brains. And we we see evidence of this in in a number of different areas. For example, you know, the classic example here is, is the Pepsi Challenge, right? So in the 1990s, uh, Pepsi being the underdog ran the Pepsi Challenge where they were very confident in how their beverage tasted. And they said, okay, when, you know, big, fancy $10 billion ad spenders Coke, when the brand is blind, we think that our drink actually tastes better. And uh, they were, generally speaking, correct. When, when both brands are hidden and people are just tasting the liquid and then just judging the perception of taste, People slightly, on aggregate, prefer Pepsi. 
Um, but of course, that presents the, the inverse of that is that the actual Coke brand fundamentally changes how you perceive the brown liquid itself. When you see Coke, it actually tastes much better. You've probably heard of the Pepsi Challenge. Conducted in the 1970s and 80s, the challenge was a single blind taste test. At shopping centres and other public locations, Pepsi representatives set up a table with two plain cups. One containing Pepsi, one containing Coca-Cola. The results of the test revealed that people across America had a genuine bias towards the flavour of Pepsi. You might think, okay, no big deal, but at the time, Coca-Cola had a larger market share, 44% more than Pepsi. Americans on average preferred the flavour of Pepsi and yet they bought Coke. Why? Well, Matt says it's down to branding. And so you get this huge boost in perception uh, from not the product itself in the case of Coke, but the actual brand. And of course, our, our sense of taste as humans, this is, uh, is not as developed as some of our other senses. So we might expect these sorts of effects in taste. Uh, but in fact, we see it in a wide range of different domains. And we don't just see it in sort of amateur consumers. We actually see it with the professionals that really should know products. And this is where we see some of the, the great examples of this with uh, concert violinists. And we ask a concert violinist, uh, you know, some of the you know top, you know, 99th percentile violinists in the world who get you know flown around to the best venues in the world to, to play violin. You ask them, well, what's your favorite violin? And they'll say some of the classic violin brands, the Stradivaris of the world. Um, but actually, when you blindfold violin players and just have them play a Stradivari versus a sort of modern brand. They actually, it turns out, prefer to play the modern brand. They actually like the touch and feel and response to it better, and they report liking how it sounds significantly better. Americans pick Coca-Cola not down to the taste, but down to the ads. Violinists pick older, traditional violins, not because they sound better, but because of the brand again. And professional golfers who have spent their lives training to master their craft, the thing that makes them perform better... Often it isn't a month of extra practice, it's a branded golf club. Here's Matt to explain. You give somebody sort of generic golf clubs and you have them uh, hit at a driving range, golf ball, one with a just totally generic golf club, one exact same physical golf club, but you essentially just slap a Nike logo onto it. People in the Nike group actually hit the golf ball about 10% further. Uh, very similar findings with, uh, with Ray-Ban. So uh, one of my favorite studies there, uh, one of uh, Dan Ariely's studies back in, uh, in 2019, uh, showed that uh, Ray-Ban actually has the power to impact the, the functional brand value. So if you have, you know, identical setup, it's, uh, you know, generic sunglasses in both groups. One, you just basically slap a, a Ray-Ban logo onto it. People report that it actually blocks the sun better. Uh, so again, totally identical uh, product, but the power of the brand really does have the the uh, you know the immense potency to really fundamental al fundamentally alter our uh, our perception and fundamentally alter the, the product experience. We might like to think that we're not influenced by brands, that they don't change the way we think, but the research says that's not the case. Even with something objective, like how much light a pair of sunglasses blocks out, you'd think that would have nothing to do with branding, but it does. 
And maybe I shouldn't be surprised, because this isn't just buzzword marketing jargon. It is a real cognitive bias that can affect how fast you recover from an illness. Totally. So if you are uh, are really in pain and you really want an analgesic, do not be cost sensitive. Do not go for the generic brand. Actually, go ahead and, and pick up the, the Tylenol or the Advil. The studies have shown that while the actual chemical composition is basically the same across a generic and uh, a branded label, uh, the branded label, a la the placebo effect, will actually have a, a more potent effect on your pain. And the really crazy thing with these studies is even when you explain to the person and you're like, there's such thing called the placebo effect. It's about the, the power of belief that fundamentally, you know, forms a, uh, you know, a, a belief based uh, sort of causal mechanism that will actually, through your own beliefs, enable you to feel better. And it's not actually real. It's actually just, you know, it's, it's all, you know, epic phenomena. Even if you explain this whole thing to people, they still are impacted by the placebo effect. Branded painkillers are more potent than generic painkillers. In the UK, branded painkillers like Nurofen often cost five times more than their non-branded variants. Yet, studies from the BBC2 documentary Trust Me, I'm a Doctor found that those five times more expensive pills were no better or faster at relieving pain when the patient had that brand logo hidden from them. Hide the brand logo and, well, you may as well take a non-branded pill because your body won't feel the difference. Knowing a pill costs more money makes us value it more and changes not only our perception of its potency, but the actual effects of its potency as well. At this stage, I started to wonder what a brand really was. It has such an effect on us. Is it just logos, colours and catchy jingles or is it something more? I asked Matt. On the one hand, uh, the brand is nothing more than a tool of the corporation. Uh, so it's a tool of the corporation to help differentiate it from industry competitors and to add value above and beyond what's delivered through the product. So, uh, you know, the corporation, that's its own independent, that's a legal entity, but the brand is a tool of the corporation that enables it to strive in the marketplace. But what, what most of us as consumers are familiar with in terms of what a brand is, is how it sort of comes across to us in the market. And really when it comes across to us in the market, the brand is really the uh, totality of emotional and semantic associations. So if we're going back, you know, internally into the corporation, the brand has an internal constitution, has a, a brand personality, has brand attributes, has a sort of strategy in terms of how it wants to position itself within the mind of the consumers and within the market. And then ultimately it communicates these, these attributes that runs campaigns, that runs advertisements, that runs content to be able to build these associations in the mind of the consumer. So it's really these two things coming together and that's really how we would define a brand. This is a question many marketers debate. What is branding? What is a brand? What should branding try and achieve? I think Matt answered the question nicely. Branding is about building associations. Associations that change the way you perceive the products. So when someone thinks of Coke, Nike, or Nurofen, they don't judge the product independently. They also think of the associations they have with the brand, whether that's the great taste, high performance, or faster pain relief. Seth Godin shares a practical example of this on Louis Grenier's podcast, Everyone Hates Marketers. Seth says, 
Imagine you go into a Hilton hotel. Think of the food you would eat, the staff you would meet, the uniforms they wear, and the bed you'll sleep in. You will probably have a fairly good idea of what this hotel will look like because of the associations you have with Hilton and other hotels like it. Now, imagine you go into a Red Bull branded hotel. Imagine what it looks like, what food is served, what the staff are like. You'll have a very different picture in your head from that Hilton hotel. That is due to the associations you have with the brand Red Bull. These strong associations change how you view the brand and what you think of when the brand comes to mind. Even though Red Bull have never built a hotel, as far as I'm aware, you'll still be able to imagine it, what it might be like, because of the associations you have with the Red Bull brand. And by the way, Red Bull, they are particularly good at building these associations. In fact, Matt says they're the best in the business. So all brands, to a certain extent, have these associations that they're trying to uh, essentially implant into the mind of the market to position it, to build these positive attributes. I think for me, the the ultimate association builder in the market is Red Bull. Red Bull is just an absolutely incredible brand. Uh, you know, all companies have, uh, you know, the necessity to, to bring value to the consumer. If you can't bring value, you're out of business as a company. When you look at Red Bull, really the lion's share of the value they bring is not through the product itself, but actually through the brand. Uh, this was sort of an interesting story in terms of, of Red Bull's origin. But when they first came up, the, the Austrian founders just could not get any takers at all. They had done sort of market research and they had found that, uh, that essentially people thought it tasted terribly, which I think it does if we're honest with each other. Uh, the taste wasn't uh, very good at all. And uh, the, the founders had the plan to charge essentially twice as much for their product as what exists in the market in terms of what Coke or Pepsi charges. And so they got a lot of naysayers, a lot of people wouldn't take them up on it, but they were persistent and ultimately they broke through and now they do about $7 billion in revenue each and every year. When we look at their success, it's not only the product so much because again, if we're going back to sort of blinded comparisons, people thought Red Bull tasted terribly and they didn't get it. There wasn't energy drinks yet. There wasn't Monster. There wasn't Bullet. There wasn't all of these uh, sort of adrenaline boosting uh, uh, sort of fizzy waters. Red Bull really created that market and they did it through their branding. And if you look at sort of the core of the Red Bull brand, there's been one thing that's been very, very, very consistent throughout and that is extreme. So when Red Bull first got their start, they branded themselves very, very closely with the actual literal extreme sports participants that there were at that time. So they, they branded themselves with X Games. They were um, they did a lot of, of campaigns with uh, people that do parkour and base jumping, really pretty extreme. And they would use it just as a functional drink. So whereas a you know a basketball player would drink Gatorade, a you know a parkour athlete or a base jumper would drink Red Bull. So in the last couple of years, they've expanded this further to be like, all right, you have a you're an office worker. You know, you have a PowerPoint presentation to your boss next week. Be the best you can be. Red Bull, knock out of the park. Red Bull gives you wings. Go knock that, you know, PowerPoint presentation out of the park. And if you would have gone back and looked at the Red Bull brand when they first started with, with X Games, you know, back in the early 2000s, and you said, well, this brand is ultimately going to be for office workers, you would have thought that was a totally crazy idea. But they've done this through 
their consistency to their core brand, which is extreme. And they've done just an exceptional job of, of executing this sort of concentric circle building out from uh, the core. Uh, and now they've, they've really been a, a very sort of encompassing brand, again, but all being very consistent with this attribute, this association of extreme. Red Bull have spent dozens of years and billions of dollars building these associations. They want people to truly believe that drinking Red Bull can help you achieve extreme things, whether that's parachuting out of a plane or delivering a decent presentation at work. Red Bull's extreme focus on building these associations might explain something that has puzzled food experts for years. See, like Matt said, Red Bull doesn't taste nice. In blind taste tests, consumers said they hated the taste, and yet millions of us buy it each day. So why does it taste bad? Maybe it's on purpose. Similarly, there's uh, uh, some experiments attesting to Red Bull's really strong placebo effects as well, where they did an experiment uh, back in France with Parisian men, and they had two groups of Parisian men uh, one group were given vodka Red Bull, the other group was given uh, vodka, basically generic Red Bull. Um, but in effect, both groups were given the generic. So one group were just told they were given Red Bull. And what they found is that the quote-unquote Red Bull group, the group that was told they were given Red Bull, they were more intoxicated, they were more aggressive, so they got into more fights, and they were actually uh, much more forthcoming, much more flirtatious with women as well. Uh, so, uh, again, sort of attesting to Red Bull's incredible consistency to extreme. And then we see uh, with some of the other brands that they do have this very strong placebo effect associated with the product as well. The associations we have with a brand changes our perception. As Matt says, studies back this up. Tell someone they're drinking Red Bull and they'll feel more intoxicated and act more flirtatiously. But brands don't just affect how we act. They affect the people around us as well. Charity fundraisers get more donations when wearing a Tommy Hilfiger top. And cars stuck behind a Lamborghini who won't drive through a green traffic light, well, they're less likely to honk the Lamborghini than a normal car. Matt explains why this is after this quick 60-second break. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. Okay, back to the show. Here's Matt explaining how all of us use brands to signal something to those around us. So because brands are, at their essence, social conventions, they, they symbolize different things. They symbolize something to the consumer, but they can also symbolize 
things to that consumer's social group. And this is really where this phenomena of, of social signaling comes in. And, and from a brand perspective, really the, the industry that, that's totally pioneered this is, of course, the luxury industry, where, you know, any old tote bag can carry your things, but there's a certain sector of the population is going to pay, you know, $30,000 for an Hermes bag or a Birkin bag um, because of, of, you know, not its, its productive quality, not its functional qualities, but because, of course, of what it signals to the social group in terms of, of taste and class and socioeconomics and, and all of the rest. The price of a product can signal its quality and make it more appealing. It's why Nurofen costs five times more and still captures market share. It's why wine that costs more often tastes better. One study cited in Richard Shotton's brilliant book, The Choice Factory, found that perfume actually sold better, sold more, when the price was twice as high. Michelin stars, the infamous ratings that rank the world's best restaurants, well, they wouldn't be around today if it wasn't for signalling. When Michelin first started the guide, it was given away for free. They updated it every year at their own cost, and as a marketing tool, it seemed a good investment for the Michelin tyre company. Give it away for free, and more people will read it, right? But after about 20 years, it stopped being a novelty. It was taken for granted. One of the Michelin brothers spotted a pile of Michelin guides used in a garage to prop up a table. They weren't being read, they were just junk. He was outraged. So the brothers stopped giving away the Michelin Guide for free. They began charging for it. And this meant fewer in circulation. And because they had to be bought, people often looked after them. They wouldn't loan them or throw them away. And because they charged for the guide, it became more respected. And the Michelin Guide grew from there. This is a story Dave Trott shares in his book, Predatory Thinking. This guide became less to do with tyres or motoring or garages. Now, consumers looked to it for true guidance on a restaurant's quality. This meant chefs fought to get in it, and they fought for higher ratings. And today, it is the predominant ranking to mark a restaurant's quality. But if the brothers hadn't started charging for the guide to signal its quality, it almost certainly wouldn't command the respect it does today. Signalling is powerful. Matt says you can even put a value on signalling. For Prius, the electric car manufactured by Toyota, signalling can be worth $10,000 to a consumer. Here's Matt to explain. Uh, Prius, of course, did something very, very similar when they they pioneered uh, Toyota's uh, Prius, when they pioneered the the vehicle uh, back in the early 2000s, where if somebody drove a Toyota Prius, it signals, you know, not just that they like Toyota, but they have sort of environmentally friendly qualities to them as well. And in fact, there's been some controlled studies on this, you know, two, two groups, you know, you're going through like pictures or options, but if the case may be, and, uh, you know, you have all these, these Priuses and you list all the features and they toggle, you know, a bunch of those variables. Uh, and one of those variables is actually the Prius decal that you have on, you know, the, the outside of, of the car. And in those trials, on average, uh, people, who are picking those, their willingness to pay goes up by about $10,000. So you say, okay, you get the Prius, but you don't get the logo. How much would you pay for it? Like, ah, $20,000. Oh, but you have one with a logo? Oh, I'll pay $30,000 for that one. It might sound irrational to pay $10,000 just to plonk a Prius logo on your car, but I'm not sure it is irrational. Signaling is what gives something its wealth. 
Just take gold. We only value gold as a society because we've all agreed that it signals wealth. If we didn't, we'd all wear iron jewellery. Seriously, the jewellery we wear isn't down to any objective reasoning. It's pure signalling. Here's a final example from Matt's book to explain this point. In the 1813 War of Liberation, the German states rose up against Napoleon and the French occupation. After several months of bloody conflict, the uprising went the way of the Germans. It ended the first French period in Germany and united Germany and modern-day Austria under the German Confederation. What's interesting to us about the war, however, is not the victors, but how it changed fashion in the region. Early in the war, Prussia faced a major dilemma. Napoleon and his army were triumphing and the Prussian military supplies were quickly dwindling. The royal family of Prussia called upon their citizens to contribute their gold and silver jewellery to the cause. The gold and silver jewellery could be sold to neighbouring empires for much-needed supplies, and by selling that jewellery, Prussia could feed their nation and hopefully win the war. Now, the royal family knew they couldn't just ask for this jewellery, they they had to give something in return. So, to show their appreciation, the royal family and the government gave people who donated their gold and silver jewellery, they gave them iron jewellery in return. Iron necklaces, iron rings. Now, iron jewellery is much, much cheaper. So this is hardly a fair deal. Before the war, no one would have considered wearing a necklace made of iron. But after the programme was introduced, iron jewellery became a must-have item. It became a symbol of patronism, of loyalty, of sacrifice. Displaying iron jewellery became a far better indication of status than wearing gold itself. Gold jewellery merely proved that your family was rich, while iron jewellery proved that your family was not only rich, but also generous and patriotic. These items became symbols, and the meaning they carried was even more precious than gold. To answer the question, do brands change the way we think? Whether I like it or not, I think the answer is yes. The place I live, the food I eat, and even the jewellery I admire is all influenced by brands and what they signal. Oh, and if you're ever given some iron jewellery, before you chuck it, check if it dates back to the 1800s and the Liberation War. Okay, that's all folks. Huge, huge thank you to Matt Johnson for coming on the show today. He is an epic guest, full of knowledge and examples. If you liked hearing him, you'll love his book. It is called Branding That Means Business. You can find it wherever you buy your books, but I've also dropped a link to it in the show notes, so go and click there if you want to pick up a copy. If you enjoyed this show, please help me out and subscribe to the show wherever you listened. That way you won't miss a future show. If you've already done that, maybe consider subscribing to my newsletter. You'll get email reminders whenever a show goes live, plus tips in your inbox every Friday. Just go to nudgepodcast.com and click newsletter in the menu. I'm your host, Phil Agnew. You'll find me on Twitter and LinkedIn if you want to get in touch. And okay, that is all. Thank you so much for listening today to this episode of Nudge.